Section 15 of Shakespeare Identified This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Shakespeare Identified in Edward de Vere by J. Thomas Loney Section 15 Chapter 4 The Author Special Characteristics our object in the last chapter being to form a conception of some of the broader features of the life and character of Shakespeare, our present object must be to view the writings at closer quarters, and with greater attention to details, so as to deduce, if possible, some of his more distinctive characteristics. It is hardly necessary to insist at the present day that Shakespeare has preserved for all time, in living human characters, much of what was best worth remembering and retaining in the social relationship of the feudal order of the Middle Ages. Whatever conclusion we may have to come to about his religion, it is undeniable that from the social and political point of view Shakespeare is essentially a medievalist. The following sentence from Carlyle may be taken as representative of much that might be quoted from several writers bearing in the same direction. Quote, as Dante the Italian man was sent into our world to embody musically the religion of the Middle Ages, the religion of our modern Europe, its inner life, so Shakespeare, we may say, embodies for us the outer life of our Europe as developed then, its chivalries, courtesies, humors, ambitions, what practical way of thinking, acting, looking at the world, men then had. Unquote. When, therefore, we find that the great Shakespearean plays were written at a time when men were reveling in what they considered to be a newly found liberation from medievalism, it is evident that Shakespeare was one whose sympathies, and probably his antecedents, linked him on more closely to the old order than to the new not the kind of man we should expect to rise from the lower middle-class population of the towns. Whether as a lord or a dependent, we should expect to find him one who saw life habitually from the standpoint of feudal relationships in which he had been born and bred, and in view of what has been said of his education, it would, of course, be as lord rather than as a dependent that we should expect to meet him. It might be, however, that he was only linked to feudalism by cherished family traditions, a surviving representative, maybe, of some decayed family. A close inspection of his work, however, reveals a more intimate personal connection with aristocracy than would be furnished by mere family tradition. Kings and queens, earls and countesses, knights and ladies move on and off his stage, quote, as to the manner born, unquote. They are no mere tinseled models representing mechanically the class to which they belong, but living men and women. It is rather his ordinary, quote, citizens, unquote, that are the automata walking woodenly on to the stage to speak for their class. His, quote, lower orders, unquote, never display that virile dignity and largeness of character which poets like Burns, who know the class from within, 
portray in their writings. Even Scott comes much nearer to the truth in this matter than does Shakespeare. It is, therefore, not merely his power of representing royalty and the nobility in vital, passionate characters, but his failure to do the same in respect to the other classes that marks Shakespeare as a member of the higher aristocracy. The defects of the playwriter become, in this instance, more illuminating and instructive than do his qualities. Genius may undoubtedly enable a man to represent with some fidelity classes to which he does not belong. It will hardly at the same time weaken his power of representing truly his own class. In a great dramatic artist, we demand universality of power within his province. But he shows that Catholicity not by representing human society in all its forms and phrases, but by depicting our common human nature in the entire range of its multiple and complex forces. And he does this best when he shows us that human nature at work in the classes with which he is most intimate. The suggestion of an aristocratic author for the plays is, therefore, the simple common sense of the situation, and is no more in opposition to modern democratic tendencies, as one writer loosely hints, than the belief that William Shakespeare was indebted to aristocratic patrons, and participated in the enclosure of common lands. An aristocratic outlook upon life marks the plays of other dramatists of the time besides Shakespeare. These were known, however, in most cases, to have been university men, with a pronounced contempt for the particular class to which William Shakespeare of Stratford belonged. It is a curious fact, however, that a writer like Kreisenach, who seems never to doubt the Stratfordian view, nevertheless recognizes that Shakespeare was more purely and truly aristocratic in his outlook than were the others. In a word, the plays which are recognized as having the most distinct marks of aristocracy about them are supposed to have been produced by the playwright furthest removed from aristocracy in his origin and antecedents. We feel entitled, therefore, to claim for Shakespeare high social rank, and even a close proximity to royalty itself. Assuming him to have been an Englishman of the higher aristocracy, we turn now to these parts of his writings that may be said to deal with his own phase of life, namely his English historical plays, to seek for distinctive traces of position and personality. Putting aside the greater part of the plays Henry the Sixth, parts one and two, as not being from Shakespeare's pen, and also the first acts of Henry the Sixth, Part Three, for the same reason. We may say that he deals mainly with the troubled period between the upheaval in the reign of Richard the Second and the ending of the Wars of the Roses by the downfall of Richard the Third at the Battle of Bosworth. The outstanding feature of this work is his pronounced sympathy with a Lancastrian cause. Even the play of Richard II, which shows a measure of sympathy with the king whom the Lancastrians ousted, is full of Lancastrian partialities. Shakespeare had no sympathy with revolutionary movements and the overturning of established governments. Usurpation of sovereignty would, therefore, be repugnant to him, 
and his aversion is forcibly expressed in the play. But Henry of Lancaster is represented as merely concerned with claiming his rights, desiring to uphold the authority of the crown, but driven by the injustice and perversity of Richard into an antagonism he strove to avoid. Finally, it is the erratic willfulness of the king, coupled with Henry's belief that the king had voluntarily abdicated, that induces Bolingbroke to accept the throne. In a word, the play of Richard II is a kind of dramatic apologia for the Lancastrians. Then comes the glorification of Prince Hal, Shakespeare's historic hero. Henry VI is the victim of misfortunes and machinations, and is handled with great tenderness and respect. The play of Richard III lays bare the internal discord of the Yorkist faction, the downfall and destruction of the Yorkist arch-villain, and the triumph of Henry of Richmond, the representative of the House of Lancaster, who had received the nomination and benediction of Henry VI. We might naturally expect, therefore, to find Shakespeare a member of some family with distinct Lancastrian leanings. Having turned our attention to the different classes of plays, we are again faced with the question of his Italianism. Not only are we impressed by the large number of plays with an Italian setting, or derived from Italian sources, but we feel that these plays carry us to Italy in a way that Hamlet never succeeds in carrying us to Denmark, nor his French plays in carrying us to France. Even in Hamlet he seems almost to go out of his way, to drag in a reference to Italy. Those who know Italy and are familiar with the Merchant of Venice tell us that there are clear indications that Shakespeare knew Venice and Milan personally. However that may be, it is impossible for those who have had, at any time, an interest in nothing more than the language and literature of Italy, to resist the feeling that there is thrown about these plays an Italian atmosphere suggestive of one who knew and felt attracted towards the country. Everything bespeaks an Italian enthusiast. Going still more closely into detail, it has often been observed that Shakespeare's interest in animals is seldom that of the naturalist, almost invariably that of the sportsman and some of the supporters of the Stratfordian tradition have sought to establish a connection between this fact and the poaching of William Shakespeare. When, however, we look closely into the references, we are struck with his easy familiarity with all the terms relating to the chase. Take Shakespeare's entire sportsman's vocabulary, find out the precise significance of each unusual term, and the reader will probably get a more distinct vision of the sporting pastimes of the aristocracy of that day than he would get in any other way. Add to this all the varied vocabulary relating to hawks and falconry. Observe the insistence with which similes, metaphors, and illustrations drawn from the chase and hawking appear throughout his work, and it becomes impossible to resist the belief that he was a man who had at one time found his recreation and delight in these aristocratic pastimes. 
His keen susceptibility to the influence of music is another characteristic that frequently meets us, and most people will agree that the whole range of English literature may be searched in vain for passages that more accurately or more fittingly describe the charm and power of music than do certain lines in the pages of Shakespeare. The entire passage on music in the final act of The Merchant of Venice, beginning, quote, Look how the floor of heaven, unquote, right on to the closing words, quote, Let no such man be trusted, unquote, is itself music, and is probably as grand a pian in honor of music as can be found in any language. Nothing could well be clearer in itself, nor more at variance with what is known of the man William Shakespeare than the dramatist's attitude towards money. It is the man who lends money gratis, and so, quote, pulls down the rate of usuance, unquote, in Venice, that is the hero of the play just mentioned. His friend is the incorrigible spendthrift and borrower Bassiano, who has, quote, disabled his estate by showing a more swelling port than his faint means would grant continuance, unquote, and who, at last, repairs his broken fortunes by marriage. Almost every reference to money and purses is of the loosest description, and, by implication, teach an improvidence that would soon involve any man's financial affairs in complete chaos. It is the arch-villain Iago who urges, Put money in thy purse, and the contemptible politician Polonius who gives the careful advice, Neither a borrower nor a lender be, whilst the money-grubbing Shylock, hoist with his own petard, is the villain whose circumvention seems to fill the writer with an absolute joy. It ought not to surprise us if the author himself turned out to be one who had felt the grip of the money-lender, rather than a man like the Stratford Shakespeare, who, after he had himself become prosperous, prosecuted others for the recovery of petty sums. Of the Stratford man, Pope asserts that, quote, gain not glory winged his roving flight, unquote. And Sir Sidney Lee amplifies this by saying that, quote, his literary attainments and successes were chiefly valued as serving the prosaic end of providing permanently for himself and his daughters, unquote. Yet in one of his early plays, Henry the Fourth, Part Two, Shakespeare expresses himself thus. How quickly nature falls into revolt when gold becomes her object! For this the foolish over-careful fathers have broke their sleep with thoughts, their brains with care, their bones with industry. For this they have engrossed and piled up the cankered heaps of strange achieved gold. From its setting the passage is evidently the expression of the writer's own thought, rather than an element of the dramatization. Finally we have, again in an early play, his great hero of tragic love, Romeo, exclaiming, There is thy gold, worse poison to men's souls, doing more murders in this loathsome world than these poor compounds. 
In a word, the Stratfordian view requires us to write our great dramatist down as a hypocrite. The attitude of William Shakespeare to money matters may have had about it all the, quote, sobriety of personal aims and sanity of mental attitude, unquote, claimed for it in which case the more clearly he had represented his own attitude in his works, the greater would have been their fidelity to objective fact. Money is a social institution, created by the genius of the human race to facilitate the conduct of life, and under normal conditions it is entitled to proper attention and respect. Under given conditions, however, it may so imperil the highest human interests as to justify an intense reaction against it, and even to call for repudiation and contempt from those moral guides amongst whom we include the great poets, who are concerned with the higher creations of man's intellectual and moral nature. Such, we judge, was the dramatist's attitude to money. The points treated so far have been somewhat on the surface, and most, if not all, might be found adequately supported by other writers. There are, however, two other matters on which it would be well to have Shakespeare's attitude defined, if such were possible, before proceeding to the next stage of the inquiry. These are his mental attitude towards women, and his relation to Catholicism. Ruskin's treatment of the former point in Sesame and Lilies is well known, but not altogether convincing. He and others who adopt the same line of thought seem not sufficiently to discriminate between what comes as a kind of aura from the medieval chivalries and what is distinctly personal. Moreover, the business of a dramatist being to represent every variety of human character, it must be doubtful whether any characterization represents his views as a whole, or whether, indeed, it may not only represent a kind of utopian idealism. Some deference, too, must be paid by a playwriter to the mind and requirements of his contemporary public, and the literature of the days of Queen Elizabeth does certainly attest a respectful treatment of woman at that period. In quotations from Shakespeare on this theme, however, one is more frequently met with suggestions of woman's frailty and changeableness. In his greatest play, Hamlet, there are but two women, one weak in character, the other weak in intellect, and Hamlet trusts neither. Shakespeare, however, is a writer of other things besides dramas. He has left us a large number of sonnets, and the sonnet, possibly more than any other form of composition, has been the vehicle for the expression of the most intimate thoughts and feelings of poets. Almost infallibly, one might say, do a man's sonnets directly reveal his soul. The sonnets of Shakespeare, especially, have a ring of reality about them quite inconsistent with the fanciful non-biographical interpretation which Stratfordianism would attach to them. Examining, then, these sonnets, we find that there are, in fact, two sets of them. By far the larger and more important set, embracing no less than one hundred and twenty-six, out of a total of one hundred and fifty-four, is addressed to a young man, 
and express a tenderness which is probably without parallel in the recorded expressions of emotional attachment of one man to another. At the same time, there occurs in this very set the following reference to woman. A woman's face with nature's own hand painted hast thou, the master mistress of my passion. A woman's gentle heart, but not acquainted with shifting change, as is false woman's fashion, an eye more bright than theirs, less false in rolling. The second set of sonnets, comprising only twenty-eight, as against one hundred and twenty-six in the first set, is probably the most painful for Shakespeare admirers to read of all that Shakespeare has written. It is the expression of an intensely passionate love for some woman, but love of a kind which cannot be accurately described otherwise than as morbid emotion, a combination of affection and bitterness, tenderness without a touch of faith or of true admiration. Two loves I have of comfort and despair, which, like two spirits, do suggest me still. The better angel is a man right fair, the worser spirit, a woman colored ill. In loving thee, the woman, thou knowest I am forsworn, and all my honest faith in thee is lost. I have sworn thee fair and thought thee bright, who art as black as hell and dark as night. Whether this mistrust was constitutional or the outcome of unfortunate experiences is irrelevant to our present purpose. The fact of its existence is what matters. Whilst then we have comparatively so little bearing on the subject, and that little of such a nature, we shall not be guilty of overstatement if we say that though he was capable of great affection, and had a high sense of the ideal in womanhood, his faith in the women with whom he was directly associated was weak, and his relationship towards them far from perfect. To deduce the dramatist's religious point of view from his plays is perhaps the most difficult task of all. Taking the general religious conditions of his time into consideration, there are only two broad currents to be reckoned with. Puritanism had no doubt already assumed appreciable proportions as a further development of the Protestant idea, but for our present purpose the broader currents of Catholicism and Protestantism are all that need to be considered. In view of the fact that Protestantism was at that time in the ascendant, whilst Catholicism was under a cloud, a writer of plays intended for immediate representation, whose leanings were Protestant, would be quite at liberty to expose his personal leanings, whilst a pronounced Roman Catholic would need to exercise greater personal restraint. Now it is impossible to detect in Shakespeare any Protestant bias, or any support of those principles of individualism in which Protestantism has its roots. On the other hand, he seems as Catholic as the circumstances of his times and the conditions under which he worked would allow him to be. Macaulay has the following interesting passage on the point. Quote, the partiality of Shakespeare for friars is well known. 
In Hamlet the ghost complains that he died without extreme unction, and in defiance of the article which condemns the doctrine of purgatory, declares that he is confined to fast in fires till the foul crimes done in his days of nature are burnt and purged away. These lines, we suspect, would have raised a tremendous storm in the theatre at any time during the reign of Charles the Second. They were clearly not written by a zealous Protestant for zealous Protestants. Unquote. We may leave his attitude towards Catholicism at that, except to add that if he was really a Catholic, the higher calls of his religion to devotion and to discipline probably met with only an indifferent response. It is necessary, moreover, to point out that Auguste Comte, in his positive polity, refers to Shakespeare as a skeptic. To the nine points enumerated at the end of the last chapter, we may therefore add the following. 1. A man with feudal connections. 2. A member of the higher aristocracy. 3. Connected with Lancastrian supporters. 4. An enthusiast for Italy. 5. A follower of sport, including falconry. 6. A lover of music. 7. Loose and improvident in money matters. 8. Doubtful and somewhat conflicting in his attitude to woman. 9. Of probable Catholic leanings, but touched with skepticism. Such a characterization of Shakespeare as we have here presented was, of course, impossible so long as the Stratford tradition dominated the question, for there is scarcely a single point that is not more or less in contradiction to that tradition. Since, however, people have begun to throw off the dominance of the old theory in respect to the authorship of the plays, the most, if not all, of the points we have been urging have been pointed out at one time or another by different writers, as well, no doubt, as other important points of difference which we have overlooked. If, then, it be urged that there is not a single original observation in the whole of these two chapters, then so much the better for the argument, for such a criticism would but add authority to the delineation, and we should, moreover, feel that the statement had been kept freer from the influence of subsequent discoveries than we can hope to be the case. Although these subsequent discoveries have doubtless affected in some degree the manner in which the present statement is made, the several points, along with other minor and more hypothetical matters, were roughly outlined before the search was begun, whilst the statement as here presented was written, substantially as it stands now, in the first days of the investigations. As soon, that is to say, as it seemed that the researches were going to prove fruitful. There are some of the above points which we should now be disposed to modify, and others which we should like to develop. The appearance of others of them in the interpolated anti-Stratfordian chapter would, under ordinary conditions, have required their omission here. 
As, however, one of our objects is to represent something of the way in which the argument has developed almost spontaneously, in some respects one of the strongest evidences of its truth, we leave the statement, with what vulnerable points it contains, to remain as it is. The various points are, indeed, the outcome of the labors and criticisms of many minds spread over a number of years, and it may be that the only thing original about the statement is the gathering together and tabulating of the various old points. So collected, these seem to demand such an aggregate and unusual combination of conditions that it is hardly probable that any man other than the actual author of the plays himself could possibly fulfill them all. When, to this, we add the further condition, that the man answering to the description must also be situated, both in time and external circumstances, as to be consistent with the production of the work, we get the feeling that if such a man can be discovered, it must be none other than the author himself. With this we complete the first stage of our task, which was to characterize the author from a consideration of the work. End of section 15 Recording by David Martin